part of our worship is listening to God and not by listening to the birds, which is listening to God, but it's an unintelligible sound that only says his glory and his beauty, but the words of God which are printed in the Bible and here we have been going through one of the books of the Bible called 1 Corinthians and we've gotten through the first eight chapters and we're now on chapter nine of this short letter to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, The Corinthian church was divided and it was divided over a number of things. One of the issues it was divided over was eating meat sacrificed to idols. The Corinthians uh, felt that there was no problem eating meat sacrificed to idols, some of them. They felt that anybody that was halfway intelligent would know that the idols aren't anything, so it doesn't matter what you eat. Go ahead and eat meat that has been part of the worship of pagan deities because the pagan deities are nothing. There were other people in the church who felt that this dishonored God, that you couldn't eat the meat without in some way giving your approval to the sacrifice to the pagan gods, and so you shouldn't do it. You should maintain your purity. And the Apostle Paul knows that this issue is dividing the church, and so he's, he's, he's trying to help them to understand that when they've gotten to the point where their brains have convinced them that they know the truth, that they have knowledge, that they have wisdom, that they haven't yet begun to love, and that love is what is required of them. And then he uses himself as an example, and he says at the end of the previous chapter, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause my brother to stumble. And so he puts himself in the middle of the issue and makes it very, very personal. And he says, look, this is my approach. But, that doesn't really help with the Corinthians because the Corinthians evidently had very little respect for the Apostle Paul. And so what he's trying to do is say to them, look, if, if, if I'm willing to love those in the church that would be hurt, if I'm willing to not eat meat as a way of caring for my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, you know, maybe you'd follow me. But what he sees is that they're not with him and that it's likely that they're really looking down on him. And it's also quite likely that there are other pastors and elders in the church who are dismissive of the Apostle Paul. It's very unusual that across the letter there's no indication of him honoring their leaders and telling them to submit to the authorities over them in the Lord and the constant... uh, the constant defense of Paul of himself indicates that the rulers in that church, the leaders, the officers, were not teaching the people to honor Paul. <laughs> All right? And so it's quite likely that the leaders actually were part of the problem on this issue of eating meat. And so here he says, look, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother to stumble. But then he stops and he realizes that He said that thinking they'd follow him, thinking they honor and respect him. And so he says, well, I I won't do it. But he realizes he doesn't have them. Are you with me? 
And so what does he have to do? Well, he has to begin to defend himself and remind them who he is. Because otherwise, they don't feel the weight of him saying, I won't eat meat if it's going to hurt somebody. And they're like, well, so what? Don't eat meat if it won't hurt. Wait, wait, wait. Do you remember who I am? Do you remember what my privileges are? Do you remember that I'm an apostle? And so that's how chapter 9 begins. He, he realizes that him telling them he won't eat meat if it'll hurt somebody doesn't mean anything to them. Well, who are you, Paul? So what? You're not going to eat meat. Big deal, you know? And so what he does is, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And so what he's doing is he's saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. Here's who I am. Don't just kiss me off. You need to deal seriously with me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you the seal. And then he gets personal. So he starts with sort of objective facts. But then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, come on now. You remember I changed your diaper. Remember, I gave you birth. Remember, I nursed you. This is the way a pastor talks to his people. You're my work. You're, you're the sign and seal of my work. In other words, you can't just say, well, yes, he has the office. You have to admit that you are my fruit of that work. And then he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. In other words, yeah, I know you're all thinking these thoughts about I know you're all dissing me. Right, right, right. Okay, my defense to those who are dissing me, those who examine me, is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? In other words, okay, here are all the privileges that I have a right to, that I've given up. Here is a mother with her children laying on every guilt trip that she possibly can. You know that joke... uh, How many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll just sit here in the dark. That's what Paul's doing here. He's going through and he's saying, dude, come on. And so he begins to go through these things, and then he begins to go through the things that he's given up, the perquisites, the the privileges that he's given up. He says, don't I have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Listen, this is whining. This last week, somebody said to me, you're a whiner, and you should stop it. And I said, you're right, I'm a whiner, and I should stop it. That is true. That is a true statement. It's actually your husband that said this to me, David Wagner. It was very good. I don't think I'll change my spots. I think I'll have to have him remind me, but now he's going back to Africa. So maybe your son, John, can remind me. Sometimes it's very good to whine. I tell parents this all the time. Use whatever means you can to make your children honor God and obey you. 
And if you have to remind them that you changed their diapers, and so you should have some return on your investment, which wasn't really uh, pleasant. It's an entirely appropriate way to leverage. You know, leverage is really big in the business school. So take the work that you've done for your children. Leverage it. Remind your children of what, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's going through all these things that he's done, who he is, what his, what his privileges, what his office is. And then he goes through and shows what he's given up. And one of the things he'd given up is he'd given up being supported financially, being supported with food, being supported with shelter, being supported by the Corinthians. In other words, he was, he was their shepherd pro bono. No pay. And so he stops and he whines. He says, don't I have a right to be paid by you? Do all the other apostles have the ability of taking wives with them? So you're not just paying to support them. You're paying to support their wife. And it's not just me, it's Barnabas. And that's a little grace note because this is the first time Barnabas appears after the division over John Mark. Okay, so they're back together. That's a good thing, right? He says, not just me, but, but Barnabas, the two of us together, and our wives. I mean, you should have to be supporting four people. But I don't make you do it. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Then, in the middle of this lament, this complaint, this this dignified whining, he stops and he makes an illustration. And the illustration has three subcategories. All right? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and doesn't have the milk of the flock? In other words, look, nature itself, all of our regular life shows the truth of what I'm saying, which is you people should be supporting me. I'm working hard, and you're not doing nothing. You don't even give me the honor of respect, but you're not even supporting me, and you're not even supporting my wife. I mean, come on, soldiers. Do soldiers defend their country for nothing? No. Okay, come on, what about the vineyard? Doesn't he drink his own wine? Yes, unless you're Baptist. And what about, <laughs> that was a joke, right? And, and, and what about shepherds? Don't they get to, like, have the milk and make butter out of it and have their kids, you know, drink the milk. I mean, come on, you know. And here's Paul. They don't respect him. They don't honor him. They're, 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 they're very proud towards one another. And love is not what motivates them, but their pride and their superior knowledge, their, their gnosis, Right? In other words, look, the Apostle Paul is being very humble here in the way he's arguing. Don't look at this as him being proud. He's so humble that he's like stooping to arguments that really are embarrassing. I mean, look, if your mother is trying so hard to get you to honor God that she says, do you remember who changed your diaper? She's not being proud, <laughs> right? So here are the illustrations, the soldier who gets paid, the vineyard 
who gets to eat the fruit of it, the shepherd who gets the milk. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment. In other words, yeah, this is how we all live. But this isn't because this is how we all live. This isn't just a function of common earthly human sense, wisdom, practice. But he goes on and he says, does not the law also say? In other words, the way we live in giving people the fruit of their labors, the way we live is from God. It's a function of the law. Because then he goes on and he says, doesn't the law also say these things? Verse 8. Do you see that? The second half of verse 8. Now let me read verses 8 and following, now that we have the feel of what we're picking up in the middle of. Uh, This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 8 to 14. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. So now you have a feel for the whole flow of the argument, right? And having gone through... This, you know, a number of specific illustrations showing the indignity that he's reduced to, showing their lack of respect for him, showing their lack of love for one another. He moves into the, illustrating it not just with soldiers, with, with vineyard owners, and with shepherds or with farmers, but he moves into demonstrating it from the very law of God. And he quotes that law in verse 8, He says, does not the law also say these things? And then in verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 25.4, which says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. What book of the Bible did Jesus quote from most? Deuteronomy. Not Psalms, Deuteronomy. But people, we live in a day today when to quote from the book of Deuteronomy is seen as a monstrous thing because we know that we're under grace and not under the law. And so I want you to notice that right here in the middle of of a letter, in the New Covenant, the Apostle Paul quotes from the book of the law and says, does not the law. So the law still is helpful to us, all right? All right, can I get this into your brain? You've all been taught you should never hear the law. Well, this is Jesus, this isn't me. 
And you say, well, it's not Jesus, it's Paul. And I say, well, all the books of the New Testament and Old Testament are red-letter books. Everything in Scripture is the Word of God. Okay? Every bit of it is the Holy Spirit. So here the Holy Spirit is using Deuteronomy as a way of illustrating a principle. And the illustration is to quote Deuteronomy 25.4, which says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So... Picture a threshing floor, and you got to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? And so what you do is you either have an ox pull a sledge that's very heavy and it grinds, or you have the ox or the oxen just walk. And they got big feet, and over time, they will separate the wheat and the chaff. And it's the wheat you want, and it's the chaff that you burn, all right? And so what the Old Testament is saying is that when oxen are... Separating the wheat and the chaff, they're supposed to be able to eat from what they're doing. They don't have to wait until they go back to their stall that night. But as they work, they're able to eat, right? And so the Apostle Paul quotes that, and then he says this. Verse 9, the second half, he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, since the Apostle Paul is applying this Old Testament law to his own right to live by his own work among the churches as an apostle, he points out that the principle with regard to the animals of God's creation is that they are of lesser dignity and worth and concern to God than Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man. Now, I'm going to use the word man sometimes to refer to a male of the species, but when the Bible uses the word man or Adam, it includes men and women. There's going to be one place where I'm going to separate men and women because that's what scripture does, but right now what you need to understand is that the Apostle Paul is here showing that the purpose of something that speaks about animals is to show something about man, men and women together, Adam, all right? Man is the crown of God's creation. Man is only a little lower than the angels. Man alone bears the image of God and possesses an immortal soul called to repentance, faith, and communion with God. Now, I'm not saying man is man. Men and women together, that's the meaning of the word man here. We, women, you and me, you and your husband, you and your sons, we together have the image of God We have an immortal soul. We are called to repentance, faith, and communion with God. This is completely different than the animals. At the time the Apostle Paul wrote this, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? He did not have to argue his point. He simply needed to make the assertion, and it was clear. The idea that animals would be seen by anyone as equal to man, the idea that leaving a dog in a car would get a man a ticket, the idea that tiny frogs would go to court against mighty dams, The idea that bats would shut down windmills that are providing electricity, 
would have proven to the men and women of Corinth, pagan and Christian alike, that the society or nation making these judgments had gone insane. And so we have. The Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament law that the oxen were not to be muzzled while they threshed the grain. Then he asks a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that you know the answer to. All right? And the question is, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? And the answer everyone then gave was, no, of course not. He was concerned about man who is made in his image and likeness. That's who God was concerned about when he gave this law. Of course we all know this, dear Apostle Paul. But today we want to argue the point because we have dogs, we have cats, and we have cows. That's for you, Mike. And surely God is, in fact, concerned about our hamsters and jerks and dogs and cats and cows. And in fact, God is concerned about them because we read this in Scripture, Psalm 145, 16, to God, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 147, 9, he, speaking of God, gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. Proverbs 12.10, God says, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And then the classic location in Jonah 4.11, God responding to the complaints of Jonah says this, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. So yes, God does care about animals. God provides for them. God created them. God condemns cruelty to them. God has compassion on them. And so what is the meaning of this rhetorical question of the latter part of verse 9? God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, what the Apostle Paul is doing is using the question not as a final statement of God's concern for animals, but of God's overwhelmingly greater concern for man, for his wife, for his children, and for the race of man that bears his own image and likeness. A few chapters after where our text is this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, we read this. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, I'm not tone deaf. I did go to UW-Madison. I did date a feminist when I was in high school. So yes, I know that that statement is heinous to us. So let me read it again, just for effect. 
The Bible, which is the word of God, says this, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now remember earlier I said, normally today I'll be using the word man to refer to men and women together. There's one point at which I won't, but it's actually not me. It's the Bible that's doing it to you. And the reason I'm reading it is this. We don't have time today to go into the distinctions between men and women, okay? Let's handle one lie, one bondage, one rebellion of our culture at a time. And today, the one I'm trying to handle is the rebellion of man, men and women together, against God's decree that we are much, much more valuable to him than animals are. And all of us together here are opposed to that specific truth of Scripture. Okay? And so the reason that I'm reading 1 Corinthians eleven seven is not for the distinction between men and women. We'll get to that in a couple years. All right? The reason I'm reading this is, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Ever since the French Revolution, but probably ever since the fall, all of us are what are known as egalitarians. Every one of us hates distinctions. Every one of us in his heart, in her heart, is a leveler. And so every one of us hates hierarchy, and hating hierarchy, we try to deny what all previous generations referred to as stations. It was understood that some were born peasants and others royalty. It was understood that some were born poor and others rich. Some were born educated and others uneducated. And you say, well, wait, they're not born that way. And I say, look, if you're any of you involved in education, any of you? If you're involved in education, what you know is that you cannot bust children loose from their families when it comes to how they will succeed in education. (laughs) All the work that we've done as a nation over the past 50 or 75 years to try to shake kids loose from their parents, you know I'm telling the truth, and, and, and you were, come on, tell them what you were. You were the union what? The president of the union of, the teachers association of, of Brown County. She agrees with me, didn't you? And and it's not because you're intimidated by me, right? No, not at all. You don't know Linda, trust me. So, royalty, commoner. Rich and poor, educated, uneducated, skilled craftsman, day laborer, man, woman, American, Ukrainian, these are stations. And from God, we get our nationality. From God, we get 
our sex. From God, we get our wealth. From God, we get our abilities. These are stations, and we hate these stations, and so we do everything we can to obliterate them and to deny them. All right? Egalitarians who are concerned more about having everything equal hate hierarchy and hating hierarchy we try to deny all stations there isn't anything higher and lower there's only a level playing field with all equal and egalitarians who have gone insane go beyond the species of man to the animals acting as if animals and man have no stations acting as if and thinking as if Animals, too, rightfully ought to be on a level playing field with man. But here's the problem with this. Did you hear what it said in 1 Corinthians 11? Man is the image and glory of God. All nature teaches it. Man is the glory of God. And man and woman equally bear the image of God, and God is jealous for his own glory. In Genesis 1.27, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That final phrase is showing that when the word man is used, it's including men and women. He gives us the image of God. And because of the image of God that we bear, we have great glory. No animal has ever or will ever have that. It doesn't matter how hard we work to make them able to file lawsuits in our court system. It doesn't matter how much the EPA uses them as means of opposing the development of a dam, the pulling down of windmill. It doesn't matter how well some monkeys are taught to communicate. There is a chasm that separates all animals and the one who bears the image of God. All right? Bearing the image of God and showing the glory of God, man is much higher than the animals. And so the proper response to the Apostle Paul's rhetorical question is, no, God is not concerned about oxen. Of course not. But keep in mind that we're dealing with teaching and exhortation and admonition. We're not dealing with legal code, and we're not dealing with a data file, and we're not dealing with a page of code. And so really the proper answer is to say, no, of course God is not concerned about oxen. But yes, of course God is concerned about oxen. And they're both true. No, of course God is not concerned about oxen. But yes, of course God is concerned about oxen. Just so much less than man 
that the point is best made simply by declaring, no, of course not. God is not concerned about oxen. But when he gave this law, his real concern was man. We are the apple of his eye because we are made in his image and we are his glory and he is jealous for his own glory. God is not concerned about oxen, is he, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. How glorious is man. Luke 12, 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Is God concerned about sparrows? His eye is on the sparrow. Indeed, the very heads of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. How glorious is man. The most tender infant, even before his heart beats in his mother's womb, is far more valuable than many sparrows. In Psalm 139, We read, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, speaking to God. And then, what? We're speaking about God knowing us, even the darkest place. So what comes next? Well, of course what comes next is the womb. And so immediately, he says, for you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The glory of man! Man is a glorious creature. Man can be in relationship with God. Man has the glory of the image of God. Man is an unbelievable creation. He has a conscience. Now, why would we deny the glory that our great creator has placed in us? Why? Why would we deny the careful work and tender knowledge of God in weaving together the wee ones in their mother's womb? Why? Well, it's because we're a bloodthirsty people. It's because we're a bloodthirsty culture. Because we have participated in and endorsed and turned a blind eye to slaughter of human beings made in the image of God. We have a bad conscience, corporately and individually. And so we want to show ourselves tender towards creatures that make no demands on us personally. And so while we slaughter human beings bearing the image of God, 
We make a big show of our care for gerbils and mice and cats and dogs and cows and birds and snail darters and dolphin and tree frogs and rainforest spiders. Make no mistake about it, if the Apostle Paul were writing this letter to the Church of Bloomington, if it were called First Bloomingtonians or First Hoosiers, and we heard it read to us some Lord's Day Assembly or Home Fellowship Group meeting for the first time, not knowing it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we heard this question, God is not concerned about oxen, is he, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Immediately we would answer, yes, of course, God is concerned about oxen. You bet he is. And if we heard the letter go on to ask what is asked in verse 10, or is the God in the Old Testament law speaking altogether for our sake, we'd answer, no, not altogether for our sake, but also for the animal's sake. What's wrong with you, Paul? Will we receive this as a loving corrective from our Heavenly Father that he cares more for our old, old mother and father? For our young, young unborn baby. Before his heart even begins to beat. For our surly neighbor. And for all those fellow employees out the back door smoking under the tree. Then we do. And that we ought to give more love to those bearing God's image than we do to our birds and dogs and gerbils and cows? Look at how we feed the birds while neglecting to love our neighbors. We buy thistle seed for animals while being deaf, dumb, and blind to the man in the chair next to us, the woman taking our money at Walmart who is suffering the death of her mother, her husband, her child and who has no knowledge of God. And so the right answer is, God is not concerned about oxen, but he is speaking altogether for our sake. And if he is concerned for us, he is concerned for our co-worker, our sister, our mother, our neighbor, and our cashier at Walmart. If we're going to feed the birds and the squirrels and the bunny rabbits and chickens and our dogs, and if we swerve to keep from hitting bunny rabbits, we should go down to Planned Parenthood and witness to the love of God for the unborn and call their mothers to God's love by calling them to our love and provision for them. Should we not? He is not concerned about oxen, is he? Is this not written for our sake? Do you have compassion as God has compassion? Do you love animals and remain cold toward man, men and women who alone bear his image? But before we leave this, let me ask one more question. Why is it that the Apostle Paul uses this Old Testament law to make his point? There were other better places in the Old Testament to make the point. For instance, 
Listen to this one in Deuteronomy 12, 14, and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who's in your land, in your towns. You shall give to him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. And so if we have a direct parallel, I mean, the Apostle Paul's talking about his right to eat by his labors among us, right? If we have a direct parallel where there's a workman and you're not supposed to hold back his pay, Paul's a workman, he cares for us, we shouldn't hold back his pay, why wouldn't the Apostle Paul use the direct example that has to do with man? Why would he use an example about animals? Now, there are two reasons that are clear. In the first service, I actually took a bunch of answers, and there were a whole bunch I hadn't thought of, and I think they're all true. But look, there's two that are very clear. Number one, isn't it sweet how by using that illustration, he, 2,000 years later, rebukes us for our preciousness about animals and our, and our heartless cru- and our cruelty towards man? Isn't that precious? So there's one reason, but here's another reason. If he just used an illustration about people, it wouldn't hit it nearly as hard. The weight of the illustration depends on saying, how much more? If this is how he deals with animals, we're men. You know, we have the image of God. How much more? That's the reason he uses the illustration about the animals. Because it's, it's stronger. It hits us harder. Right? We're talking about men here, not animals. The reason is that the point's stronger when it's made for animals. If animals are to be permitted to eat the fruits of their labors, how much more man who has the glory of God residing in him? And so you see, it's no tangent to hammer home the point that man is worth far more than animals. This is the foundation for the Apostle Paul's point here. And if we live in a society where the rhetorical question doesn't work because of how evil we've become in our thinking and judgments, we have to correct that evil before we may even understand what the Word of God says here. And yet, do you know what's interesting? Do you know in the early church... There's a letter from an early church father to the Christians in which the early church father says to them, for shame, you all take better care of your dogs than you do the babies lying on the slopes behind your houses and behind your city who are starving to death and dying. How could you spend money caring for and feeding your animals and you don't go out and pick up the little ones on the slopes and bring them home and raise them as your children? (laughs) And so what do we learn here? What we learn is there's nothing new. There's nothing new. The truth is, he was dealing with a very similar thing at that time, and he was just showing the disparity between animals and man. And he was showing them the kind of care they should have for people because they were callous, as we are. And so now let me try to pull the text together so that as we come back to it in a couple weeks, we'll feel the flow. 
what we have here is we have the Apostle Paul dealing with division over eating of meat. He says, look, if I'm going to hurt anybody by eating meat, I'll never eat meat again. And then he realizes the people think he's just pathetic. And it's like, okay, Paul, you do your thing, dude, you know. He says, hey, 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 wait. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Aren't you my fruit? As a matter of fact, shouldn't you have to support me? What do you owe me? I've diapered you. I've fed you. I've disciplined you. I gave birth to you. I carried you for nine months in the womb. What, What are you dissing me over? What soldier defends his country for no pay? What vine dresser doesn't eat his fruit? What shepherd doesn't have the meat and and the milk of his flock? And look at the law. The law says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. You think he cared about animals? It was for us he was speaking. What is the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying to us, you owe me the respect of my work. You should honor me. Do you remember I referred to this earlier as whining? <laughs> remember that? He's in the middle of a rant of whining. Okay? He's a Jewish mother. Now, what's the application of this to us? Well, the application of this to us is, look, We've seen it again this week, and it's going to happen over and over and over again. The time's going to come when you're going to have an older woman of this church, if you're a woman or a girl, come to you and tell you that that you're not quite living as God desires, that there's something you need to work on. If you're a man, you're going to have an elder, a pastor, a deacon come to you, and they're going to say there's something that you need to change. And you're going to be just like the Corinthians. <laughs> Who do you think you are? I put up with this just about enough. I don't have to take it anymore. You're going to be dissing your mother, which is the church. And of course, you don't diss the church cosmically. You diss the church when an elder that has bad breath speaks too closely to you, and you think, and plus he has bad breath. And that's to diss the mother that God has given you for the protection of your soul. Just like the Corinthians were dissing the Apostle Paul, and he's like down in the gutter pleading for the rights of an ox. And when that happens, I want you to remember, she gave birth to you. She changed your diaper. She fed you. She spanked.
not ever dishonor her. And if you think you're so good that you don't need her care and you spurn her care, you won't be dealing with your elders or the older women of this church. You'll be dealing with God. And you say, oh boy, that sounds very proud. I say, no, trust me, it's not proud at all. You think the Apostle Paul felt proud when he got done writing this? He probably felt dirty and took a shower. The only thing is they didn't have showers. No, 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 no. If I weren't making this application today in this church, I would be an unfaithful mother. Do you remember back when we were going through Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him? Remember that? That's the Apostle Paul again. And listen, more than anything else, the good thing you're to give the church is your love and your submission. And there will be times where you will be asked to do things you shouldn't be asked to do, but you ever lived in a home? Think of all the things you were asked to do that you shouldn't have been asked to do. This is part of being in a fallen world. Church is not perfect. The church has many, many failures. And those failures are never cosmic. They're always individual. <laughs> They're me. <laughs> Remember? Remember what David said to me this week? You're a whiner. Okay? Love, love your mother, the church. Love the apostle Paul. Look at the Corinthians and have horror to think of anybody treating the Apostle Paul the way he was treated. Then make sure that you do not in any way treat the church that way. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be times when pastors and elders and older women of the church are disciplined, of course. But that's in the individual. I'm talking about the aggregate. Your posture needs to be one that you will never leave the church. Never. And you say, well, does that mean that clear note I'll never leave? No, you, you probably, like most of the people that have ever been here, you'll move away someday. But when you move, the only way you'll move is if you know that you have a mother where you're going who's going to discipline you and rebuke you and admonish you and change your diapers and comfort you. And then you won't be moving away from us, you'll be moving to them. Okay? All right, let's pray.